Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. This week we are going to South Pass City for our museum tour. This place was absolutely fantastic. And as I was recording, I found out that we are going to have to do this in two parts. So this week we are going to cover the museum and the grounds that they have several different original buildings in the town of South Pass City from the 1860s through the 1890s. This is a fantastic tour. Our tour guide was great. He went into a lot of detail. A lot of the stuff is there from the original town. So we are going to this week cover the museum and the grounds there. And then next week we will do a tour of the mine. The mine tour was also exceptional. I hope you listen to both of them, find them both entertaining. And now let's get on with the show. Today, we are in one of the coolest places in Wyoming. I think I say that about every place I go. But we are with John, who is a your Wyoming history... I'm the site curator at South Pass City State Historic Site. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything other than I'm here to help you see what you need to see. Okay. Uh, so if it's a school tour, I'm your guy. If it's uh, get me in the exhibit, I want to take a really good photo of something, I'm your guy. If you want to learn how to gold pan, I'm your guy. And just about everybody else that works here can say the same thing. We're, I was going to say, you're the guy at South we're, Pass City. We're, we're here for you. So That's good. Yeah, we want your experience to be authentic and genuine and rooted in true Wyoming history. Cool. And we're also here with my traveling companion and our co-host, Linda. You'll probably hear her interject some questions and statements in and amongst things. She actually tries to stay aloof from the microphone, but uh, she gets involved every once in a while and, and happy to have her along with us also. So we're here at South Pass City. Tell me a little bit about the history, just just kind of briefly. and. Sure. And where we're, what we're looking at and how we're going to do this. Sure. Most people in America know about the westward uh, immigration to California, to Utah, to Oregon. They know those uh, folks in the wagon trains are on foot with hand carts, whatever it might be, Pony Express, all follow the Sweetwater River through this area of Wyoming. Well, the Sweetwater River was where folks found gold in the 1840s. And they knew that river pointed uphill into the mountains someplace. But they also knew that there were Indians waiting for them and, and unpredictable weather. So nobody followed that trail of gold up into the mountains for about 20 years. And when they did, they established three towns, South Pass City, Atlantic City, and Hamilton City, which today we call Miner's Delight. And those, I have those, never heard of Hamilton City, and I've been through this area a hundred times. Well, Miner's Delight is how we refer to it today. And, and those three towns boomed for a couple seasons of mining uh, and then busted. So uh, we always tell the Wyoming history kids when they come here, this is where Wyoming's mineral economy boomed first. Massive rush, thousands of people, hundreds of buildings here. 
And then, of course, when the minerals uh, either run out or get too dangerous or, or expensive to extract, the people all leave. Fortunately for us here, a lot of buildings were left behind and cared for over time uh, by a handful of families. And the objects inside, uh, in large part, are objects that they used and cared for all through the years. And we're standing in what obviously was the saloon at the time. Uh, if you'd like to, we could go to two more. There's it's, two more saloons There's in two town. more saloons in town. So, okay, now is there other special kind of houses here also? Uh, not that still are in operation. <laughs> I'm not sure what kind of tour we're doing today. Here, so. And how many of those houses were around? We're right next door to the foundation of one of them. Um, probably several. You know, uh, South Pass City, even during that initial boom, was considered more of a family town than the other towns. Atlantic City would be much more your rip-roaring red light district. And uh, they had a section of town over there they called French Town. And there were a lot of French last names associated with that, but there might be some other exotic uh, activities going on there, too. Okay. Now, was, was this area uh, like Atlantic City? Atlantic City's what, five miles from here? Yeah, about four. Yeah. And where was Miner's Delight? About another two miles beyond Atlantic City. Uh, so about uh, six miles from here or so. And uh, Miner's Delight... Uh, was really centered on one mine, the Miner's Delight Mine. So the name Hamilton City really fades within the first couple of years. And that uh, mine didn't produce gold beyond, oh, say 1900. So that town just became a post office, a uh, saloon, and a building or two within 10 years or so. So is gold the major mineral? It, it is. There, the gold is found here in a fairly pure form, Unfortunately, not a lot of it, of course, uh, but there's a little bit of silver alloyed in there and just a trace of copper alloyed in there. So the gold that you do find is always, oh, I'll say 90%, even, even more pure than that, but a little silver and a little copper in there. And now, Atlantic City, that's about four miles, five miles away, mm -hmm. that city, when I just drove through it, yeah. appeared to be a, uh, still a, a thriving city. Uh, or not not necessarily city. There's, what, 150, 200 people live there, maybe? Yeah, you'll see two dozen people there in the wintertime. And, and, and a lot of the buildings are still original there also? Yeah, there's a, a, an Atlantic City Historic Society that has a walking tour guide. So if you stop at the Merck, the uh, old post office, general store, saloon, dance hall, you name it, uh, you can pick up that walking tour guide. And uh, there's some numbered locations throughout town. You can park your car. You can walk down or take a driving tour of the town there, too. They've got, um, I'll say, 15, 20 historic structures there throughout town. But you saw, too, there's a lot of um, summer cabins, hunting cabins. Um, you know, I, I bring the snowmobiles up in the wintertime to hit the trails, so I keep a place up here. Um, that kind of thing. And what's the elevation here? Main Street in South Pass City is about uh, 7,600 feet. So the snow is definitely plentiful and the snow machining is awesome. It, it is. And I've got to say Wyoming State Parks has a division or a, a subgrouping that takes care of uh, the snowmobile trails. And a great uh, trailhead up here is uh, at the end of the Loop Road. Uh, it's signed Louis Lake or Lewis Lake. And uh, people drop off snow machines uh, by the dozens and enjoy some really well-maintained and very scenic uh, winter trails. So yeah, this time of year, great summer destination. You can get away from it. You can uh, pan for gold in the creek. You can go fishing, 
hiking, you name it. But in the wintertime, you got the counterpart where, yeah, you can snow machine, cross-country ski. Uh, BLM and Forest Service have partnered on a cross-country skiing and snow or a snowshoeing trail just down the road here at Beaver Creek. Uh, and they groom that trail too. And uh, yeah, there's there's a little bit for everybody. And the thing that's cool about summer here is it cools off at night. I mean, when it's it, it gets yeah. what to high of eighty during the day. Eighty maybe? feels eighty feels warm up here. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so it's a great place to get away from the. I was gonna say, don't let that secret out, though. I mean, that, oh, okay. <laughs> everybody scratch what I just said. We're keeping this a secret. It's hotter than hell up here in the summertime. Exactly. <laughs> We, we get contracts, contractors, fortunately, we see contractors every summer, and uh, they remark on that. Oh, we'd much rather be working at South Pass City in July than we would at, say, the Bighorn Basin or, you know, uh, the Sweetwater Country, something like that. So they know that, too, and they bring their camper trailers up and, and enjoy working here. Cool. And you were saying earlier when we were talking that you kind of gear this place for about the 1890s because well, I'll just let you explain it. Yeah. The, the first boom really was from 1868 to 1871 or thereabouts. So a couple seasons, a real intense activity, mining, massive boom, and then a crashing bust when the easy gold ran out. So for about 20 years, the place up here was fairly quiet. Science technology keep advancing. Mining becomes cheap again. And you've got new tools, new explosives, new technology. So the second boom takes place in the late 1890s up here. And that's the town that people will visit today. The buildings here that you see today were here in 1890s for that second boom. And uh, the objects left behind, the furnishings, the interior decor uh, is from that 1890-1900 era. And I'm noticing that, that you have the stretched canvas on the walls. Yeah. which is kind of a way that they had their log structure or whatever. I've seen it in several of the old yeah. ghost towns. And then they just stretched the canvas in order to make a smooth wall instead of having plaster or sheetrock or anything like that. And this is very well preserved. It's exceptional. And a lot of it uh, has been restored. So say a uh, building here, uh, that had been abandoned years and years and years, and, and uh, those kids decided to break the windows out of the place. Well, the birds come in. The first thing they do with that canvas or that muslin is they'll peel off little ribbons of that uh, cotton fabric to line their nests. But what they can't pull out of the logs is the tacks that hold it in place. Right. So someone like us today, we go in an abandoned building. We examine that. And we'll see those rows of tacks, some of which still have uh, fragments of paint hanging onto them. So you know what was on the walls, how it was stretched, and you know what color it was. So and some of them were flower patterned and, and kind of... Very decorative. Yeah, you see some stencils, things like that. Uh, and again, they brighten the building, the interior. You go into some of these log places, they're they're kind of cramped and dark and dingy kind of feeling. But when you walk in a saloon like this, it's bright, it's light, it's uh, definitely the place to be. Okay, one other question I have is this is South Pass City. And you were saying that, that the wagon trains and everything were about 20 miles south of here? Not quite 20 miles. Uh, the Oregon Trail passes within about six miles is the last crossing of the Sweetwater. Uh, it's called uh, the Ninth Crossing, the Last Crossing, or Burnt Ranch would be another name for it. Although the Oregon Trail folks knew it as South Pass City. 
And uh, that's what confuses a lot of people is, well, so this was the Oregon Trail. This is the Mormon Trail. The Pony Express riders came up Main Street. Well, no, there was an earlier South Pass City that was a station on the Pony Express. And uh, that was a, a telegraph station, that kind of thing. And, and it was burned a couple times by the Indians. So it became known as Burnt Ranch. But the military uh, uh, had an outpost there, too, at one point in time. Uh, there was a military cemetery there until about 100 years ago. So uh, those folks going west knew one South Pass City, but as soon as the gold rush hit, the Pony Express was done by that time. Telegraphs are fading out because they're following the Union Pacific uh, across southern Wyoming. And so this became South Pass City. Okay. And then the... It's pretty mountainous coming up into here from Lander or yeah. from Farson, uh, Rock Springs. You'd come on up through Farson and then come over South Pass. Uh, definitely check the weather before you do that in the wintertime. I've been over South Pass when you could not see the next delineator post that was only 100 feet away. And you were wondering if you were even on the road because it can be just nasty up here in the winter. But that being beside the point, the elevation here is pretty high. What is the elevation at South Pass where the Oregon Trail crosses? Is it a lot less steep? It's about the same elevation as Main Street here in South Pass City. The advantage of that actual uh, Oregon Trail passage over the Continental Divide is that it's much more rolling, gradually increasing uh, terrain. Whereas here, a little closer to the Wind Rivers, it's uh, more rugged and more uh, broken country. So not traversable by wagon or Pony Express here, but five, six miles from here, it's a lot more easy gradient. Okay, because I, in my travels through here, I've often wondered about how hard it was for the oxen and that kind of stuff to bring the wagon trains over the, the hill. And I was wondering if the actual pass was a little bit more grade tolerant or, or whatever. Very much, yeah. And again, the actual geographic pass um, is about 12 miles from here. And the roads to it aren't well signed. I've got to say that right off the bat. But you can go out there. You can see tr trail ruts there and a couple monuments at the geographic pass. Uh, uh, monuments that have been placed there about 100 years ago. Uh, one of whom was... I might have to go take a look at that. It, a day like today, again, the road conditions are great. The, the Things have dried out and warmed up real nice so far this year. Uh, a lot of times I won't uh, tell people to go out there until July just because it might be a little bit wet or damp. But I've driven in my parents' uh, four-door passenger sedan out to the geographic South Pass. So if that tells you how easy that country is, you don't necessarily need a four-wheel drive if it's firm and dry and, and uh, navigable. Oh, uh, I was going to say, the monuments out at South Pass uh, were, one was uh, placed by a fellow who went out as a child to Oregon, and his name was Ezra Meeker. So uh, when we talk about people Ezra about Meeker. the Meeker marker or the Meeker monument, oh, okay. Ezra Meeker came back as an older gentleman, and he was really one of the first people who wanted to commemorate the Oregon Trail as this American uh, opening uh, experience. And he came out uh, west as a child again, and uh, then in his later years wanted to put these monuments at important places on the trail. And his name is Ezra Meeker. Did uh, he write a book? He may have written an account or a, uh, uh, but I'm not familiar with uh, any the account. The name just sounds really, really familiar, familiar to me. 
Yeah. And I think that there's a book called The Oregon Trail that was maybe written by him that's an old book from when he came back right. and and rerouted everything and, and redid it. But you, I'm not going to, I don't know that for sure. I was going to say, have to look up. you kind of touch on something again. It's, it's cause I don't, if you need a person who has all the answers, that isn't me. Uh, but there is South pass has this connection to the Westward movement, the military and the, the Western forts. It has a connection to the early uh, trappers, fur traders. Uh, it has a connection to mining there are so many connections. We see people who are Oregon Trail enthusiasts or they're fur trapper, fur trader enthusiasts, and this geographic feature brings everybody to this area. So uh, I ought to be able to speak fluently on, on topics like that, but I'm, I'm your historic ghost town guy. So, so it's well, basically a hub. It is. It is really a crossroads, mm -hmm. and everybody knew that at the time, even uh, that all of a sudden those creeks and rivers are running west instead of east or east mm -hmm. instead of west. They realized that this was an important uh, feature. And those buttes you saw as you drove down in, those big flat-topped, you know, uh, semi-mountains down to the south there, those are the Oregon buttes. And that's Oregon country out there. And when you get out far enough off the pavement, you get to the Tri-Territory Monument where uh, you have the Louisiana Territory, the Oregon Territory, and, and Spanish America all coming together in one point. So there's some real people sense this as, a, as a, either no man's land or a wilderness on the one hand, or they sensed it as a gateway to opportunity and the unknown on the other. Real, real neat area. Well, the other geographical thing to think about here is that as you go north, you're in the Wind River Range. And the Wind River Range is, well, it's got the highest peak in, in the state of Wyoming. Yes. And so we're on the south end of that. So your fur trappers, they had the, in fact, tomorrow, I'm going to be doing uh, one of these podcasts at the Mountain Man uh, Museum in Pinedale, <clears throat> which ought to be another really good uh, Absolutely. museum Solid. to go see. Solid experience. And... Uh, it's just one of those things that the Mountain Man rendezvous were held, what, 10 years in the Green River Valley, just outside of Pinedale at the base of the, of the west side of the Wind River Range. You had a lot of trappers and fur trappers uh, in here in the 1820s. Yes. Yes. And the Oregon Trail was coming across in about 1840, am I correct? Yeah, you had your, your peak use uh, would have been when the California Gold Rush started then in uh, 49, 1850 would have been your peak years of use. Okay. Uh, and it's again, the Oregon traffic now joined with that California traffic. And of course you got also the, uh, the hand carts going right, through the, the uh, Salt Lake Valley. And, and they were all coming out of the, the start of the Oregon Trail sits at uh, Independence, Missouri, if I'm correct. And it finishes up at Oregon City, Oregon, or Sacramento Valley in California. Right. But there were forts all along the way where you could buy supplies at exorbitant rates. But uh, there was, what, 100,000 or 150,000 people traveled the Oregon Trail? And they, they didn't call it a trail either. You look in the historic accounts, and I look at a, a few of them, and they call it the road, the emigrant road. And so they had no trouble spotting where the path was. They didn't necessarily need, after uh, several years of use, they didn't necessarily even need... Uh, uh, someone to find the path. I, I, I've heard that the reason that you didn't have to find the path is because people always thought they could take a lot more than what they could. 
And so as they got to Wyoming and the weather was hot and their animals weren't doing so well, yeah. the piano went out one side and the dresser drawers went out the other. And the, and then yeah. along the way, there were lots and lots of people died. So there were grave markers the whole way. And from what I understand, it was kind of a kind of a garbage dump going all the way out to Oregon. And regular grave sites going all the way along here, too. It's not too far from the Geographic South Pass, and it's a site that's difficult to find. But uh, it's about, uh, oh, 30 feet square is fenced off. And uh, it's a multiple grave site that was marked in the 1950s uh, officially. And uh, that's known as the Danzy grave site. And uh, there's three burials there. Uh, if you go south of Atlantic City on the Three Forks Road, uh, you'll see uh, signs for Rock Creek. And Rock Creek is the site of the Willie Company uh, handcart disaster. And they lost, uh, oh, about 15 people over the course of a day or two days of really rough weather in October one year. Uh, most people knew Independence Rock, 4th of July, you're well on your way. This handcart company hadn't left uh, Omaha Council Bluffs area until August. And uh, they were in deep trouble by the time they hit uh, South Pass area in October. And they lost uh, a number of people. And the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, has thousands, tens of thousands of people come up every summer to commemorate those graves, but also to reenact uh, handcart experience. Uh, I think they've got two different, I think they've got a museum just north of uh, Devil's Gate, they do. which is one of the, the high points on the Oregon Trail. And I think they've got another one at Sweetwater Junction Yes, where they do re the reenactments. They bring out kids from all over the place yeah. and make them wear period clothes and drag their handcarts around just <laughs> to see how much fun it really was. Yeah, And I don't think it was really that much fun because in those handcarts, they were only able to carry what? A hundred pounds of stuff, if that supplies yeah. and everything else, and, and dragging a wooden wheeled cart that had wheels on it that was probably three foot, four foot uh, high, so that it was a little bit easier to roll over the rocks. But dragging that thing across the prairie would not have been fun. And, and to make the trip, yeah. I guess they stopped at Salt Lake. They made it only halfway, but uh, still, to make that trip was was a several month ordeal. Absolutely, and and, and they they traveled light again so that they could cover ground quickly. They didn't have livestock to take care of, but that's also uh, a detriment too because uh, you got to carry it all yourself. So yeah, a lot of people, like I say, a lot of user groups, a lot. There's something in this neighborhood, I think, for uh, a lot of folks. Well, the Donner Party came over here too. Again, another another one of, of many mistakes. They started late yes. and early snowfall going over the Sierra Madres. Sierra Madres, is that the one outside of? Oh, yeah, the Sierra Nevada. Sierra yeah. Nevada. Yep. Yeah, the Sierra Madres are in Southern Wyoming. Yep, they are. So anyway, uh, but yeah, you know, another ill-fated deal just because nothing went right for them. They took a trail that wasn't that wasn't specified. They kind of took a cutoff and and they fought a trail making a mile a day instead of the 20 that they should have been making. Which is a segue to about another group that visits us. And it's a group of people that is looking for someplace else, but they found us instead. And, and they may find us with a flat tire or two, or they may find us with a... Uh, 
flashing gas gauge that has said E for 20 miles and <laughs> where's the next gas station. So we're a point of civilization out here too nowadays. And I'm always surprised in the, the summertime by all of the scenarios that we see. And uh, I'm not necessarily your guy to change a tire, but I'm sure five or six times this summer, I'll be changing tires. <laughs> Well, sorry to have digressed so far away from what we're doing here at South Pass City and covering history. Back to the saloon. The Oregon Trail and all of that kind of stuff. Let's get back to South Pass City now that we've covered all the surrounding area sure. and, and people ought to have a pretty good idea of, of kind of the geographic and, and uh, dynamics of what was going on when this town was, was getting going and, and the gold was, was becoming the boss. Absolutely. How much gold did they take out of this city? Out of the Carissa, the uh, estimate, and again, it's only an estimate because um, uh, everybody wants to know how much gold you've got. Mm -hmm. Some of them want to take it from you, and some of it, some folks want to tax it from you. So people are always fairly secretive about how much gold they're finding. But the Carissa, the biggest mine here in the district, got about 100,000 ounces over its lifetime. A lot of that would have been in the initial period. Uh, but there were another three booms at the Carissa, the 1890s boom, the 1920s boom, and then uh, post-World War II, 1946 boom up there. And wow. I also tell people maybe the next boom is yet to happen. You, you never know. So uh, about 100,000 ounces of gold out of that. Uh, but the Miner's Delight could say about the same, and that's at the other end of the district, uh, about six, eight miles from here. And then, of course, Atlantic City's got about a oh, half dozen mines that could also come close to that. So uh, you're not talking a million ounces out of the district here, uh, but when you add it all up, it might be close. So was this mine or this town owned like a lot of other mining towns by one big corporation that you worked for the company store and and just kind of, I won't say took advantage of them, but they did take advantage of a lot of these workers that were here. Was this mine the same or did they have a lot of independents that were panning and, and actually succeeding? A, a lot of independents. Uh, so once that, uh, in, even in the first boom, I mean, it is a lot of independents, a lot of individuals or associations of small groups that might have left the bend west for a summer. They're gonna leave the farm, leave their brothers to, to do the, all the work. They're gonna come out and roll the dice here in the mining camps. And so you see a lot of small associations of people come out here and uh, a lot of independent activity. Uh, after that first boom, um, the town site was platted, was officially mapped and segregated into lots and, and blocks during the second boom. And that corporation knew um, in order to get some buy-in from the local populace, they should sell those lots off to people already living here for a dollar a piece. So the, the, the town, again, that you see here today, largely was sold to the people who were already occupying it for a dollar a lot back in 1898-99. And what was the corporation that, that was that, kinda... that boom uh, during 1898 was a federal gold mining company, and they were headquartered in Chicago, Illinois. And that corporation, their kind of claim to fame here, uh, other than the town is what those folks knew, uh, they pulled together 14 mining claims at the top of the hill under one flagship corporation for the first time. So they bought up all the little guys and pulled them 
all those claims together into one corporation. And that's what's owned by the people of Wyoming now, and they know that as the Carissa. It's actually multiple claims under one, uh, one name. And where did the miners have to go to file these claims? Here, during the gold rush, they had a recorder's office. This was, back in the initial rush, the Shoshone Mining District. So if you went out, you located a nice stretch of creek, or you found an outcropping of quartz in the hillside, you'd stake a claim, you'd pound a stake in there, and you'd put a notice on there, you know, I, John Doe, do hereby claim the following, and you would go down and record that notice with the district recorder here in South Pass City uh, for a fee to record that, and that becomes your official claim to the, to the ground. So you've got a notice posted at the location, you've got it recorded in a public document, and then by right of occupancy and work, you hold that claim. You and can't- was this under the Homestead Act, or how did that, how, how did, what gave- The initial- I mean, now if you wanted to file a claim, it's kind of a big ordeal and all of that, whereas it sounds like it was pretty lax back then. It was a lot more freewheeling, and, and a lot of the mining practice here in South Pass City and in Wyoming and in Colorado or Montana has its roots in the California gold rush. So the norms and rules and regulations that come into a widespread practice are actually rooted in basically common law practice in California. So uh, it is a different process today. You've got to record your claim with the Bureau of Land Management if it's on federal property. It also has to be recorded at the uh, county clerk in the county in which the claim is located. So there's a little bit more paperwork involved than a hand scribbled note in a stake pounded in the ground. Um, but again, right of occupancy and work is really what carries the day because they didn't want someone to come in and stake the ground and then leave. They wanted someone to work here and be productive to have that gold go into the local economy and uh, lubricate the wheels of uh, civilization. Uh, they just didn't want people to tie up the ground and keep out everybody. So you needed to improve, just like you like now. Just like homestead, just homesteading. Just like homesteading. Very yes. much, yeah. And did you actually own that property and could transfer ownership, or was it a lease type? It, it's program? an annual situation. So your claim is good for one year, and you've got to renew that. And your renewal has to identify the improvement, the work, the assessment, whatever uh, effort and time and money you put into it, you have to identify that in your next filing. Uh, if you had enough work and improvement, just like your homestead, you could file with Uncle Sam to patent, make private that federal domain. And uh, the Carissa was the first property in uh, this portion of the Shoshone Mining District to be patented, to be taken from the federal domain and to be turned into private property. Uh, by a gentleman who was uh, headquartered out of Salt Lake City at the time. And uh, after that, though, because it's your private property, you have to pay property taxes every year. So you don't have to file the records in the office every year. You've got to pay taxes. And so there's uh, some folks who decide to keep their land in the federal domain and just file on it year after year after year. And if they miss their filing, the next person jumps your claim, gets in front of you and says, I'm going to file on that piece of ground. You missed the... And there the... could be a fight. Absolutely. <laughs> and there were instances of that. We don't see a lot of death and destruction, but we see a lot of brute force and intimidation for sure, mm -hmm. uh, where people took even small amounts of gold very seriously. Oh. Well, let's go ahead and move on to a sure. couple of the other buildings. 
Uh, just so people here in podcast land understand what's going on, we have a pretty windy day here. So we are going to maybe go look at three or four more other displays and buildings, find a place to hole up where we can talk without the wind distorting our conversation. And so we may be talking past tense as far as things that we've seen as we progress on with this uh, audio tour. Absolutely. Okay, we are back inside again after looking at a couple of other buildings. We are inside of a house that was built in the 1890s by John Sherlock. The principal family in town was the Sherlock family. And you said that they owned almost everything in town at that point in time? When the boom went bust, that family hung around and they picked up uh, hotels, restaurants, saloons, stores, uh, postmasters, postmistresses. They started uh, ranches. They had mining claims. They were the ones who were going to pick up the pieces and make the world over the way they wanted to see it. Okay. And in so doing, uh, they preserved everything pretty well. They were savers. I mean, you talk about people sometimes that they are pack rats or they're, they're savers might be a polite way to say that. That family kept everything. So, um, you know, it might be a, a, a cook stove that uses cordwood here in the kitchen, or it might be the registered mail book from 1900 in their post office. They still kept that. And if your mail hasn't been delivered yet, we'll, we'll see where it's at. You know. Okay. And, and since they had all of this and they were keeping it that way, how long did they own this before they sold off or do they still own parts of it? Yeah, one member, the, the family came here during the gold rush of 1868. They actually came the second year, 1869. And uh, mom and dad had a couple kids that they brought with them from uh, Utah. And one of their boys uh, passed away in 1948. And uh, he was the last member of that original family generation to pass away. And that second generation didn't want to stay in South Pass City anymore. So some of them peeled off for Granger, some of them peeled off for the Lander area or Riverton. Uh, and so it's really after, after World War II that this place finally goes into essentially its second period of ownership. The first period having been that Sherlock family. That's amazing the, the way that this has been preserved because I've been to a lot of ghost towns and this is probably one of the best preserved. I mean, Virginia City is pretty cool, too. When you get to Virginia City, Montana, <clears throat> it's it's a pretty neat town and, and a lot of the original buildings and original things that were there, but kind of the same thing, the same family, Yes. Uh, from what I understand, kind of held on to things and, and yeah. kept it going. Mm -hmm. But uh, this house is super nice. You've got a really cool old home comfort wood stove, and you were just telling me a story about uh, the grade school kids that come in the middle of May and it's a little bit cold and carry on. Yeah, I was going to say, you already know we're in a, uh, an environment that is pretty fickle, especially at the end of May when the schools want to come visit us. And uh, if it's windy, blustery outside, we'll bring them on in here. And uh, before you even open your mouth to warn them that this stove is hot, some kid smells that whiff of smoke or maybe the match you lit 20 minutes ago and that smell of that sulfur match is hanging in the air and they know right away, is that stove burning? And yeah, it is. And I usually challenge them to say, where do you think you put the firewood in this stove? And almost every time they walk up and they open the door of the oven. 
And of course, now the know-it-all has embarrassed himself or herself in front of the entire group. And uh, then I let somebody else take another guess. You know, where do you think you put that? And they sniff around, they look around, and uh, they begin to understand that this stove doesn't have any knobs or dials. There's no thermostat on it. That um, this really is a different kind of machine that you have to make do what you want it to. Otherwise, the results are not going to be very palatable. It is a whole different cooking experience to use a wood stove. Uh, when we first moved into the trailer house that we lived in for a long time, we did not have any source of heat. We were wow. building a straw bale house, uh, and we were building it as we had time, as we had money. And the wife was cooking on a wood stove okay. and there was a lot of challenges. You know, it was one of those things I'd get up in the morning. That was our only source of heat, our only mm -hmm. source of cooking. And I'd get the fire going. And like you said, you know, the oven is, is two foot by two foot by two foot deep. But the firebox is only 12 inches by 14 inches by 16 inches yeah. uh, dimensions. And so you'd have to keep that thing eating wood all day long and regulating your heat because a wood stove, the heat comes around the top first and then circulates around the bottom before the smoke goes out the chimney. And so trying to cook a cake, you use bricks and you put a cold brick in and that regulates the heat down. And if you're cooking a cake, you've got to turn that cake a couple of different times because a cake cooks from the top down instead of from the bottom up. Wow. Fantastic. And, and so mastering a cake in an oven, you know, they say don't ever open the oven when you're cooking a cake. Well, you're opening it up three or four times huh. and turning the cake. Huh. And uh, but biscuits, cakes, anything cooked in a wood stove, in my opinion, is 10 times better than anything cooked on a gas or, or wood stove. And there's Wyoming kids that um, have that experience, too. They either have a summer cabin or a hunting cabin that's got a wood stove in it or, hey, my folks have one or grandma's got one. Uh, there's Wyoming kids that uh, still see this regularly enough. And every July, not this July, unfortunately, but uh, July of 2021, we'll have our friends group, our support group come in here. And in July, they'll have this stove baking cookies. So as much as you relish that heat in January in your house, in July, every window and door on this building is open to try to get that heat out. It's it's a like you say, it's an experience. There's a lot of there's a lot of cast iron here, and when it gets warm, it really puts out the heat. Yeah. We used to do a rendezvous uh, situation in Basin, Wyoming. Uh, hasn't been going on for many years, but my daughter used to have a wood stove that we would take, and she'd bake pies. Uh, second week in June is when we had it, mm -hmm. so it was hot a lot of times there too. But it was an outdoor deal. And there again, the pie, cooking pies or cooking anything in there is a whole different experience. But the one thing that is really cool about these wood stoves is that the chimney comes up through what they call the bread warmer that sits about a two foot above the top. And so if you can get your dad to get up early and build a really good fire and stick your clothes in the bread warmer, and then take them up to you before you get out of bed, you can put on warm clothes. If your dad is not feeling nice and doesn't put your clothes in the oven or in the bread warmer, then you get to put on cold clothes just like what he did. 
<laughs> that, that's an experience that the Sherlock family, they told me, the kids who grew up in this house in the 30s and the 40s, had the same experience where they would drape their long underwear, they'd take their shirts for the day, and they'd drape it all over the stove. And the last generation of uh, kids who grew up in here, there were four of them. And so they each had their own side of the stove. They all quarreled. They got in trouble with mom. Oh, you had that side yesterday. <laughs> I want that side today, the way kids still do today. And so they had assigned sides. And uh, like I say, they warmed the clothes up, just like what you're saying there. But they also, they claimed anyway to be practicing their ABCs on all of this lettering. Uh, as the stove was warming up, as they were warming up in the morning, they'd be looking at all the letters that were embossed in this cast iron and uh, practicing their alphabet as children when they grew up. Yeah, see, this one says marble, malleable iron, and then you've got home comfort on the front. You've got, I mean, there's lettering all over on these yeah. things. They're very elaborate, uh, ornate, done with nickel finish usually. And the other thing that's really cool about the wood stove is I was saying, you know, that you put bricks in in order to cool it down. You mm -hmm. took bricks out to, to whatever. But at night, you take those bricks out of the oven. You make sure there's plenty of bricks in the oven. And at night, you take those bricks out and you wrap them up in a towel and stick them in your bed. And they'll keep you warm till about three o'clock in the morning, at which time you start hearing the bricks kicking out of bed. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know all this. I have never experienced it, believe me. Well, having talked to a couple <laughs> of kids who grew up in here, again, kids will ask me, why do you have a sled in here? Why do you have cross-country skis in here? They, those look homemade. Well, the number one season at South Pass City is winter. And we've been harping about warming up clothes and how to stay warm and how to play and how to transport. Winter was the season for these people who lived up here. And uh, it was meant life and death, quite literally, oh, at yes. times. Yeah. And the other thing that, that they had that uh, a lot of people maybe don't know is, is they had marble slabs or soapstone yeah, slabs yeah. that they would sit on the stoves. They also would take charcoal out and put them into a container. And yes. that is what you put underneath your blanket when you were riding your open-aired sleigh yes. or buggy. And it would keep your feet warm. You'd sit on it, whatever the case is. But you would use rocks, bricks, uh, marble slabs, anything you could heat up on the stove. And then wear, you know, put that on your seat or, or under your feet in order to try and stay warm when you were traveling from one place to another. You'll see one of those uh, sleigh foot warmers across the street in the hotel. Okay. So the, the parlor here is... Wow one of the original two rooms of the Sherlock house. Uh, the other room being the kitchen. Uh, when mom and dad had a kid or two or three and then four, they realized maybe a bedroom would be appropriate so that we could have a little distance between the family. Uh, but um, the, the building originally started as just the two rooms. And uh, the pieces that you see are from the Sherlock family. Unless, and again, this is the rule here at South Pass City. If it looks new, it is new. If it looks old, it is old. So like this parlor stove, we didn't have a, a, an original Sherlock parlor stove. It's a replica. Uh, the table lamp here, brand new. It's a replica. It's period appropriate. It rounds out the exhibit, makes it uh, more photogenic and more complete visually. Uh, but like the child sewing machine, the pump organ, the little baby play piano over there, all Sherlock family artifacts. The white sewing machine, the, the, the sewing, treadle sewing machine. 
the brownie camera on the uh, parlor chair. I mean, there's lots of cool things in here. Yes. Yeah. This is definitely a, a good place to visit. There is so much to see. It's the nicest house in town, in part because the family um, that lived here was the most affluent in uh, town. And, and again, here in the bedroom, one of the things I like to show off to the school tours or whoever I have in here is the wallpaper. It ought to be, if the manufacturer is being honest with us, the only time you see it anywhere. Uh, an original piece was taken off of the wall when this building was restored for preservation. And that piece was long enough that a repeat of the pattern was apparent. It went to a company that specialized in wallpaper, custom wallpaper manufacture. And this is your custom replica pattern. And this should be the only, unless they made it for somebody else, should be the only place you see this pattern anywhere. And the, like I said, the thing that's really cool about this is it's so well-preserved. And we were talking a little bit earlier on our way here that this is in a state of not, not, uh, yeah, you, in arrested minor, decay. In, in minor slight. I've been to some other mm -hmm. ghost towns that were in a state of what they called arrested decay, which means that they would do whatever they could to keep the buildings maintained. But this is in the in a state of restorative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Miner's Delight again, uh, federal site just down the road a few miles is in arrested decay. You won't see very much unbroken windows or bricks and chimneys or furnishings that kind of thing. It's it is as it is. Uh, here, this again is a resource that belongs to the people of Wyoming, and the philosophy here is. Uh, you should be able to walk up. It should explain itself. It should tell its story. We should showcase the belongings of Wyoming pioneers, Wyoming uh, miners, freighters, uh, housewives, children. Uh, the place should tell its own story, and it should be an authentic story. So what you see here is restoration based on investigation and uh, a lot of original artifacts. And we passed the mercantile on our way down and that is in us is in a stage of restoration right now right we've been researching that one uh the building has been used by our friends nonprofit group for going on 40 years now as their um, gift shop their bookstore which helps us here to make ends meet and uh, they determined this year that they would place their uh, uh, gift shop in a different building which allows us or actually puts the burden on us as as the uh, research and histo history people to restore that as authentically as we can to its 1890 to 1900 appearance. And again, those savers, they kept their invoice books from who they were purchasing and how much and how often and who they were selling to locally, how much and how often and in what amounts. So when you buy 200 pounds of coffee and you sell it two pounds at a time, five pounds at a time, and you got a great big coffee grinder in there to grind it up in case they don't have their own at home. There's just so many ways that that exhibit is going to, we hope, authentically reflect uh, Janet Sherlock, her son, Peter, her daughter, uh, uh, Bunty is what I was going to call her. And I'm trying to think, Jenny is her real name. Uh, what those salespeople, what those merchants were doing in that building until 1948 when uh, Peter finally passed away. Wow. Mm. And then we passed the storehouse next door and the storehouse has been turned into basically a gold uh, panning, digging, uh, mining display. You've got the front area that 
Yeah, the it's an old, uh, like I say, an old store, an old warehouse building, and yeah, it's been remodeled completely inside uh, to a gold mining interpretive center. So the first room is placer mining, surface mining activities, everything from panning and sluicing to a steam shovel dredging that went through Atlantic City in the 30s. We've got an assay shop that explains some of the uh, chemical work. Um, there's some of the milling processes that are shown in that front room. Then you step through, and if you recall, there was a little less headroom. It was a lot darker in that back room. That's the underground mining story in the back room. So you can look at the power drills, the, the air power drills, the, the uh, old uh, carbide lamps or even candle lamps uh, before the battery era came in. And you notice the steel soles. I, they've got a steel sole that you can put on the bottom of your shoe. I've never seen anything like that. And it had to have been a blacksmith's nightmare. To, it's, it's flat on the bottom and then comes on up like it, you stick your shoe down in it and kind of grip it. Yeah, the... the and, I can't imagine how, how nice and treadworthy that would be so that you didn't slip and fall, you know. I mean. they, they do call it hard rock mining, so oh, I think bad. that wore out the soles pretty quickly. Uh, but, yeah, that building is a, a real nice one in terms of if someone needs an introduction to mining, the technology, the history, the tools. And then we went into the bourbon room, did you call it? Well, bourbon basement. <laughs> I don't remember what you called it. Two names, and I don't blame you for not recalling. The, the original name that we like to call it is Fort Bourbon. If you remember, when we stepped in there, there's a three-foot-thick stone wall with about a six-inch iron door on it, and it's dug back into the hill. So that Fort Bourbon is where, in the gold rush in 1869, that the uh, local saloons kept their most valuable commodity, which was not gold. It was whiskey. And afterwards, the Sherlocks, as they uh, came to acquire much of the town, they used that as their root cellar, their, their cool storage area. And a lot of folks in that period call it the cave. They remember as kids in the, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, going back in the cave. It's dark. It's cool. And the smells in there really, for kids especially, leave that lasting uh, memory, that impression. Now, did all of the saloons keep their whiskey in the same place? And if they did, were there arguments, fights, and this is mine, not yours? I, I wish I knew what their practices were. I don't, but I do know that there were 14 saloons in that gold rush era. So when, when again, depending on the, the group I'm with, I might say mining was the number one industry in this boomtown. What was the number two industry? And the fourth grade school kids will say, oh, blacksmithing. No, it wasn't that. Oh, well, I bet it was freighting or it was general stores, mercantiles. No, the number two industry, same in Wyoming's mining towns today, saloons or bars. And those, oh, yeah. And then they go off and they talk about uh, Wyoming's life today. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and move on sure. to another building. This is absolutely fantastic, John. I'm, I'm appreciating and, and enjoying this uh, it, tour very much. My pleasure. I'm glad to, glad to take you through. Okay, so now you've brought us into the restaurant. The restaurant building. Yep, it's connected to the South Pass Hotel. And uh, they're the cornerstone of the Sherlock Enterprise here in South Pass City. Okay, and also the residence and bedroom of the 
the, the owner, the matriarch of the family, Janet Sherlock, she was postmistress. We saw the mail slot cut in her bedroom door so that if you had mail to drop off and you missed the post office hours, you could slip it in uh, uh, after hours. Her oldest son had a room downstairs here too. The family had a parlor downstairs here. And then the, the main room we walked into initially uh, is the guest parlor. So the upstairs is dedicated to travelers, the teacher, the school teacher in town here typically got a room gratis, you know, room and board as part of her pay. So there's the teacher's room upstairs. I mentioned uh, ranchers, cowboys uh, coming into town for supplies or to see the blacksmith, whatever. Uh, so we've got a number of rooms upstairs, the cowboys room, the prospector's room. Um, and, and we leave that to people when they visit to kind of digest with their eyes and kind of tease out the details for themselves. And, and the, thing that, the thing that people need to remember is going to town, even though town was only 10 miles away or, or five miles away, yeah. was an all-day deal because you had to harness your horse, you had to hook it up to your wagon or your buggy, you had to bring that thing across country at, at maybe three miles an hour, so it was a two-hour trip into town. You did your shopping, you did whatever, and, and I'm assuming that like most towns, this town had something exciting happening every weekend. They had dances over in the dance hall, or they had a group of musicians playing or something like that. So you would try to make your town visit on a Friday because that was your social activity. You lived out where you maybe didn't see anybody else for the rest of the week. Yeah, you're spot on with all of the above, and a lot of times... South Pass and Atlantic City alternated those kinds of events. So it might be a Valentine's Day dance. It might be a Thanksgiving Day event, uh, but they alternated those. And, of course, there were always uh, uh, weddings, marriages, baptisms, funerals, all of that thrown into uh, to boot. But, yeah, trips to town were special, and the Sherlocks knew that, uh, yeah, they kind of had a corner on the market in this uh, part of the world. And so they had the hotel which I, I just learned, I just learned reading a, a car magazine, the difference between a hotel and a motel. motel. A motel was a motor hotel because when you were traveling, you'd take your car and then you had a place to stay. Whereas a hotel, a lot of times was maybe a little bit more permanent. You would, you would rent a room and then they would have a restaurant mm -hmm. like this place downstairs where you could eat. Sure. And, and take care of business and everything else while you were in town. And you may be in town for two or three days. You may just be overnight. But coming to town and, and taking care of all your social activities or social needs, uh, maybe hitting the saloon for a night or two, uh, partying it up, whatever. You know, you had all these people. Definitely. The, the hotel was more of a, a residence, as you put it. And again, the, the last teacher at the South Pass City School, which we didn't visit and may not on this occasion. I know you'll be back. Uh, the last teacher who taught up there is still living outside of Cheyenne. Oh, really? Uh, the school shut again in 1948. Again, when the Carissa was shutting down, the families were leaving town. Uh, this uh, young girl taught school. She was about 16 years old. She stayed down here in town and uh, again, uh, treated this hotel as a residence more so than a, a one night stop. Uh, right. So there are people, and we're fortunate to visit with them, that have living memories of this town as a place uh, that they worked, that they lived, that they uh, stopped and fueled up. Uh, and that living memory is a real special thing because uh, uh, it's not just a stale museum. It is a place 
um, that still lives in people's minds. And was there a lot of ranching and cowboy activity in this area? Yeah, definitely the Sweetwater Valley, uh, great uh, source of water and grazing. Um, you see a lot of the early sheep action, sheep uh, raisers come into the Sandies that feed down towards uh, Farson and that country down there. Was there a lot of the cattle, sheep, war stuff going on here like there was in the rest of the state? We're, we're just uh, processing a collection of documents that were donated and some of them date back to uh, oh, um, the early days, the Dakota Territory days. So, I mean, some of them are old, old documents, but some of them do document that uh, the Sherlocks bought 4,000 sheep pelts. And that coincides with an incident um, for about 40 <laughs> miles away from here where 4,000 sheep were clubbed to death. Okay. So the, that kind of happened all over yeah, Wyoming. We went yeah. to the Jim Gatchel and they were talking sure. about that. We've talked a little bit yeah. about the Spring Creek Raid and a couple of different yes. yep. deals. Uh, there was major tensions between the sheepmen and the, and the cattlemen. Very much, yep. And the Sherlocks, again, we've seen the receipt. Their band of sheep was driven into this country fr from Oregon. So those wow. poor sheep had to walk all the way across the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains, and, and their offspring had to walk right back here again to Wyoming. And unfortunately, not all of them made it. But, but you have to wonder how many cowboys died in the lamb peas. Dum dum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry about no, that. No, that's... I just I had to do that. The, uh, the kitchen here, again, is one... I try to bring school, school, school groups back if I can because... They'll look around, they'll see things they recognize. Okay, they know wood stoves by now, but they'll see, well, where'd they get tomatoes? Well, you know, we still get produce from Salt Lake Valley. We still get it from California. And because we've got invoices and receipt books for the, the uh, general store, we know who the vendors were and where they were located. But you know where the, the butter or the cheese came from. It came from the cow back in that barn. You know where the eggs came from. It came from the chickens back there. Um, so kids kind of peel things apart and they can see that some of this you can do for yourself and some of it you need uh, to be brought in from elsewhere. But your growing season here can't be much more than a month in the summer. Yeah. I mean, you, I know that when I was living in Pinedale, you had your last snowstorm, usually the first part of July, and you had your first yeah. frost the middle of, of August. And yeah. sometimes those were even closer than that. Yeah, that third week of August, you can almost set your clock. You're going to have a killing freeze here. Uh, springs will vary a little bit with that last spring storm. Uh, I've been snowed out of South Pass trying to get into it off the highway Memorial Day weekend. And, uh, you know, good luck on Memorial Day weekend trying to get, you know, a couple miles of road plowed out. But, but it's not uncommon to see skiffs of snow oh. as late as the middle of June. And there's a drift just above town here that uh, if, you're, if you grew up all your life in Florida or South Texas, and it's your first trip to Wyoming, the Rocky Mountains or the Yellowstone, and you just landed here in Wyoming, I've run out of fingers and toes to count the kids who've run up to that snowdrift as the first snow that they've ever touched or made contact with in their life. And living uh, in Wyoming, it's hard to even imagine that yeah. because snowdrifts up to your waist are not uncommon in a lot of places. This, this last winter was a tough one. It's, it and, started early. but That's something else I noticed, too, on the way in here is there's quite a bit of snow fence. Oh, yeah. We ought to explain what a snow fence is because I've talked to different people that have absolutely no clue as to why out here in some of this windswept area, you've got miles of fence that's 
probably 12 feet tall and has slats on it. It's open in the middle, and you, any animal could go around either side of the fence. Yeah, come, but, come August, that is a, one of the top 10 questions, is what are all of these strange-looking fences? They've come up uh, from I-80. You know, they've come up through Farson, had a scoop of ice cream there at the Merck, and they've stopped at the Sweetwater Rest Stop, and they've come up, and they see about 10 miles of these odd fences. Of course, by August, the snow's all melted out. And you just can't communicate to them, well, that drift starts there 200 feet off the road, and it reaches almost to the road by the end of the winter, a good winter. Anyway. And, and they're put up there just to keep the snow controlled on the road because yeah. we have snow plows. Wyoming's roads are very well maintained. The roads are kept open Excellent. 99% of the time, uh, and it's a lot of work for YDOT to keep those roads open. We've got uh, snow plows running and plowing lots yeah. of snow. But the snow fence, as the wind blows across, it brings that snow up over the top of the fence, and then the snow drifts on the backside of the fence. And those drifts will be 12 feet deeper, and like you said, 200, 300 feet long. And the last into July, typically, in a good year anyway. But yeah, uh, another, yeah, that turbulence just lays it in there, packs it in there. And again, come August, people just don't believe that that snow is that voluminous and it is and wyoming wind uh we do have wind an awful lot yeah and it it piles it up and there's no way that they'd be able to keep the highways open if they did not have that snow fence running the way that they do yeah and now they're starting to go with with live snow fences which when you're driving out across Mm -hmm. the barren wyoming country and all of a sudden see a whole bunch of trees that are six or eight foot tall that looks kind of like a hedge that's yeah. a, a, a new technology that they're using, but it, again, it's to keep the snow off the road. You'll see that between Lander and uh, South Pass along the top of Red Canyon. They're going with those uh, uh, living snow fences out yeah, there. Yeah, and you see them north of Rollins quite a bit uh, out there uh, between Muddy Gap and Rollins. You mentioned Whiteout or the Wyoming Department of Transportation, and they do a fantastic job. Uh, I'll say 12 months of the year. I use the highways an awful lot. And I'm able to, through the historic context, go back in time. And we've talked about the Sherlocks once, twice, 10 times now. Well, the Sherlocks lost a daughter that was being sent to a prep school in uh, the Salt Lake Valley. She uh, essentially froze to death about 20 miles from here. Uh, But she died of uh, the gangrene that set in from the severe frostbite. So uh, the the fellow who was driving that uh, sleigh out there did freeze to death. And uh, she lived long. She lived about three weeks and slowly died up here in the winter because they couldn't get a doctor in. They couldn't get out themselves. Uh, so, yeah. And all you can say is the guy driving the sleigh was the lucky one. He, he and she was able to tell. He gave away his coat to me and he gave me the blankets and, and they found her after the third day out there without uh, any protection. So, uh, yeah, uh, any number of these freighters, teamsters, uh, stagecoach drivers, missing toes, feet, uh, legs, fingers, uh, noses, ear tips. I mean, you name it, if they could lose it, uh, which is why, again, you know, 100 years makes a lot of difference. And uh, travelers on Wyoming's highways today uh, really have it made by comparison. And, and like we were just talking, YDOT does a fantastic job of keeping yeah. those highways open. Yeah. Wyoming roads are, they, they're, they're top of the line. You know, I've, I've been Absolutely. to a lot of different states. 
Our roads are wide. We have nice shoulders. Yep. And YDOT has done a fantastic yeah. job of making life good for us. Mail carriers would say the same thing. Uh, UPS, FedEx would say the same thing. Emergency services, highway patrol, sheriff's departments, they would say the same thing. There's a lot of unsung uh, heroes on those crews that maintain the roads, maintain the vehicles, those delineator posts, the directional mm -hmm. signage. Yeah, YDOT is uh, really the top. Even our mountain passes, you know, coming in and out of the basin where I live, yep. going over to Sheridan, going over to Buffalo, those roads are open 90% of the time. In fact, I don't, I, I could probably yep. count on one hand in 20 years, the times that I've seen those roads closed because of bad weather. Another one of our top 10 observations I'll say from visitors here is, you know, I was real nervous to get off that real nice highway and come on this, this dirt road the last two miles in the South Pass City. Well, you know, we've been on enough true dirt roads to know that this is a well-maintained county road coming down into South Pass. And so I don't know how many people won't make that turn and take that mile and a half leap of faith to get off the pavement and uh, to drive down into, I think, what is uh, uh, America's premier uh, Old West Town and mine site, which we'll be heading to soon. And, and I would definitely agree with you. This place is unbelievable. And getting here is easy. The washboards, I mean, there are washboards, but I went to Chaco Canyon, and I'll tell you, that was hell. Uh, <laughs> absolute hell getting into Chaco Canyon. I will probably never, ever do that again. I had a motorhome, and every pan, every drawer, every utensil was on the floor. The It was just absolutely horrible. But, you know, there are washboards here, but it's still a 15, 20 mile an hour drive. It doesn't beat your brains out. And this is easy access. And, and I've been to a lot of ghost towns. This one is clean. It's it's restored. It look it gives you a real feel for what life was like. And I would encourage anybody to come here if if they're coming through this way at all. Thank you. We also had a building in between the restaurant and the, the hotel that we stopped in at that had, it was more of a modern building. You said that it was a modern building put up mm -hmm. and had some nice displays in there too. Yeah, thank you. That uh, is a modern building and we don't pull the wool over anybody's eyes here. We want your eyes to tell you the truth that what you see is old or what you see is new. And that building houses uh, rotating or uh, regularly changing exhibits. And inside that exhibit today are a couple different aspects of uh, town life in South Pass City. You probably saw a silver tea service. You saw, I know, a whole display of irons for uh, taking care of the uh, old style clothing. And there again, those were heated on the wood stove or, or heated you know, from the wood stove and, and used. A lot of primitive technology still comes into play, or at least your eyes can tell you uh, how it worked. And why did they have to iron their clothes back then? I, I, I just, you know, I mean, I would have said absolutely not if I had to run one of those old irons. They had to have been hot. And... It, it was not to get to church service here on Sunday because even from the gold rush on, South Pass has been without a church. Uh, the Episcopals tried a church here for about a year, threw in the towel. Apparently they didn't have enough... Uh, uh, congregants, uh, enough members to keep the, the show. But uh, they had 14 saloons. <laughs> that's the fallback. So at least, you know, they weren't without uh, some means of uh, Spirit. salvation. <laughs> yes. 
there were spirits. They just weren't at church. <laughs> and then uh, you were talking about the the Warren over there. Warren, I think his last name was Smith. Yeah, the Smiths. That uh, was still born and heated in the oven. Yeah, young man who started life uh, presumably dead at birth, but uh, family wanted to hide, they thought, the remains of this child from the mom so she wouldn't uh, panic, put him in the oven, and it was still warm. Again, another wood story, wood stove story. They here. probably didn't close the oven door. I'm guessing not. Or, <laughs> but he came back to life and uh, in a kind of a primitive incubator type situation and screamed his lungs out and, of course, maybe made him ornery from the start because... Years later, he, uh, playing around in the barn behind the building, carved his name into the doorway there. You can still see his name carved in there today. And, of course, uh, that juvenile delinquent that was carving his name indoors then was appointed to the Naval Academy at Annapolis, where he did uh, graduate. He later commanded a, a destroyer in World War II in the Pacific and was awarded commendations. And um, we've displayed his uniform now in the past. We've displayed his uh, saber from Annapolis in the past. And right now his medals and his, uh, his uh, service cap are on display. Cool. So one one of our else, VIPs. Something else I'm seeing is there's quite a few people here with, with dogs that are walking. So this must be a dog-friendly park. Uh, very much so. If the dogs are friendly, we are, you know. And a lot of people travel with animals, a lot of people. And of course, look, you've got a great expanse to get out and explore with your own two feet or let that dog off a leash right on down the street here at the end of the site. They can explore, they can... Uh, we're super friendly. And I gotta, I've got to say, like the Labrador Retrievers, those... Uh, Cold uh, weather breeds, they love getting in the creek here. They love getting a little bit damp. So, you know, people come here with one of those breeds, they, they may want to keep them on a leash and, and keep them dry. Or I'll smell them wet dog the whole way they will. for the rest of the trip. They will. Yep. <clears throat> Very good. And, of course, be a responsible pet owner. Really, people treat this uh, place very well uh, as far as litter, cigarettes, dog refuse. I mean, you name it, people treat the place very well. That is so cool. Oh, we must be in another saloon. I promised you two more. We we might only get to two today. And this uh, one's even set up with uh, drinks on the on the bar. And... and if you notice in the exhibit here, this is one of the few interior photos that we have historically. So we've got a photo from 1898. And when you look at the exhibit in this building, those bar pieces, those cabinets, that's the original material still in this place, uh, what, 120 years later. Wow. So uh, you got a portrait of Lincoln and a portrait of, of George Washington. Yep. And then I guess this must have also had the barber shop in it because you've got a chair set up over here for getting all trimmed up before you have a drink. You sometimes see the, the combination of things and Matter of fact, uh, recently Lander had a business that uh, where you could get a shave and a haircut, or get a shot of whiskey and a beer. So, um, yeah, I was going to say saloons are about uh, spirits, alcohol, tobacco, this kind of thing. But they're also about the fraternity and the social aspects of right. life in a community. And you could uh, hear news, whether it's true, false, or the the neighbors' rumors. Uh, you could read a newspaper. You could, um, uh, you know. 
play cards. You could, I mean, there are any number of things. You could listen to music. You know, if you didn't play an instrument, you didn't have one, you could pay somebody else. It's like putting a dime in the jukebox or something like that. And the adjacent room here, we call it the card room today. It was added on to the saloon just for that. They had a separate card room, a casino type room. And uh, as you can see, we have oh, it wow. uh, exhibited as such. So this passageway right now is a, a barrier. But in the old days, you could, uh, hey, barman, you know, bring over your... Uh, another round of drinks or, uh, you know, hey, we need uh, a line of credit maybe to extend that card game a little bit longer. You got a really nice roulette table here. It, it is. And yeah, card set up and wow, this is it, nice. I was gonna say most times, um, you know, if someone wants a, a high quality photo or say they're a more of a, a studio or a professional type photographer, uh, they just need to ask, you know, hey, can I get behind this glass or this plexiglass? Can I get beyond the security barrier? And we're happy to accommodate people. That um, is you awesome. Know, it's, it just it affords them a higher quality experience here, too. So bring your period clothes and, and some, take your pictures. Some people do. I've got to say we've had uh, wedding and engagement photos. We've had high school graduation photo shoots uh, where people... Uh, want something unusual. You know, they've been in the studio in town a million times or they've been to the, the canyon outside of town. Um, hey, let's uh, do some shots in the uh, saloon, so to speak. Cool. Yeah, this is really, really nice. And I guess that uh, if your haircut didn't turn out quite the way you wanted, the barber could buy you a beer and it'd look a lot better. It would look a lot better or maybe a few drinks later it would look better <laughs> all the rolling go where am i to go meet johnny where am i to go for i'm a young and a sailor lad and where am i to go